We bought this rundown house, my missus and I, while I started working on converting the kitchen into a main bedroom. She insisted on removing the old wallpaper. The previous opener prepared every wall and ceiling in the house. It's a lot of work to remove, but it feels so good to get rid of it. The best feeling is getting a long peel, like when your skin peels after a bad sunburn. She turned it into a game, on the hunt to rip the longest piece possible. She shouted to me when she noticed there was a person's name and date under the corner section of the paper in every room. I couldn't help but investigate and googled those names. What I discovered left me speechless. The names all belonged to missing people and the dates matched the days they disappeared. We notified the police who sent a crime scene team I overheard one of them say, Yes, it's human. Wait, what's human? Sir, where is all the material you removed? It isn't wallpaper. It's skin. Hi everybody and welcome back to the Dark History Podcast where we explore the darkest parts of human history. Hope everybody is well. I'm Rob, your host as always. Welcome to the new episode. Again, I hope you enjoyed our short little ghost story to start. This is the second instalment of our spooky season special, and today we'll be looking into some of history's most gruesome executions. I don't think I need to tell you that this is going to be a little disturbing. So for people with weak stomachs or people who get distressed when listening to descriptions of torture or suffering, this is your warning. So without further ado, please turn off those lights, sit back and relax under the blanket for more Dark History. We start our descent into the bloody and sickening rabbit hole that is today's episode with a Hungarian rebel named Gorgi Doja. And believe me, this story is not for the faint-hearted. Doja was born in Dalnok around 1470. Not a lot is known about his younger years, but what we do know is he became attracted to a military career and wanted to follow in his father's footsteps after his father's death. Doja served in several fortresses and became known as an excellent duelist. He took part as a cavalry captain in the 1513 campaign against the Ottoman. After the campaign, he remained on guard in Belgrade, but Doja's desire for glory grew and he challenged the feared Ottoman champion Ali of Apiro to a duel. Ali was the leader of the Ottoman Spahi cavalry who had already caused the deaths of many Hungarians during the duels. Ali immediately accepted the challenge. The duel was held in a field between Belgrade and Smenderevo on the 28th of February 1514. After a desperate long and fierce struggle, Doja 
cut off Ali's arm, and finally beheaded the Ottoman champion. With this victory, Doja won a nationwide reputation and fame, and for this brave deed, Gorgi Doja was knighted by King Vladislav. The Hungarian Chancellor, Thomas Bakox, on his return from the Holy See in 1514 with a papal bull issued by Leo X, authorised a crusade against the Ottoman. He appointed Doja to organise and direct the movement. Within a few weeks, he had gathered an army of some 100,000 Kuroks, consisting of the most part of peasants, wandering students, friars and parish priests, some of the lowest ranking groups in medieval society. They assembled in their counties, and by the time Doja had provided them with military training, they had begun to wear their grievances on their status. No measures had been taken to supply the voluntary crusaders with food or clothing. As harvest time approached, the landlords commanded them to return to reap the fields, and, on their refusing to do so, proceeded to maltreat their wives and families and set their um, retainers upon the local peasantry. The rebellious, anti-landlord sentiment of these crusaders became apparent during their march across the Great Alfold, and Bacox cancelled the campaign. Instantly, the movement was diverted from the original objective, and the peasants and their leaders began a war of vengeance against the landlords. The rebellion spread quickly, principally in the central or purely Magyar provinces, where hundreds of manor houses and castles were burnt, and thousands of the gentry killed by impalement, crucifixion and other methods. Doge's camp at Segled was the centre of the rebellion, and all raids in the surrounding area had it as their starting point. In reaction, the papal bull was revoked, and King Vladislav II issued a proclamation commanding that the peasantry to return to their homes under the pain of death. By this time, Doja had captured the cities and fortresses of today's Sinad, and signalled his victory by impaling the bishop and the Castilian. Subsequently, at Arad, Lord Treasurer Istvan Telijdi was also seized and tortured to death. After this, Doja's rebellion was beginning to wear thin. He was routed at Timisoara by an army of 20,000 led by John Zapolia and Istvan Bathory. He was captured after the battle and condemned to death. On the 20th of June 1514, Doja was condemned to sit on a smouldering heated iron throne, forced to wear a heated iron crown, and hold a heated scepter, mocking his ambition to be king. While he was suffering, a procession of nine fellow rebels, who had been starved beforehand, were led to his throne. At the front was Doja's younger brother, Gurgli, who was cut into three despite Doja asking for Gurgli to be spurred. Next, the executioner removed some pliers from the fire and forced them into Doja's skin. After tearing his flesh, the remaining rebels were ordered to bite the spot where the hot pliers had been inserted and swallow the flesh. The three or four who refused 
were simply cut up, prompting the others to comply. In the end, Doja died from the ordeal, while the rebels who obeyed were released and left alone. After that terrible end, it's a wonder how we can top it. But unfortunately, we can with the tale of the Dutch Prime Minister, Johan de Witt's lynching and subsequent cannibalisation at the hands of his people. Johan de Witt was born in 1625 in the Netherlands. His father was a distinguished man and the burgomaster or mayor of their native town of Direct. Witt was well educated and showed strength in mathematics early on. When he came to power, he used this math skill to handle the Republic's financial and budgetary matters. Johann de Witt's father was strongly opposed to the House of Orange, a branch of Europe's aristocratic dynasty called the House of Nassau. The Orange monarchists and the Republican merchant class had a long-running conflict, so Johann de Witt followed his father's lead. And while becoming more and more politically influential, he remained stringently anti-Orange. His intelligence and eloquence, in addition to his father's status, helped Johann de Witt become the ruler of Holland. He was named Chancellor Pensioneri, or the political leader, in 1653, when he was 28 years old. At the time he took power, the United Provinces, the predecessor state of the Netherlands, was at war with England. But with his keen political skill, De Witt was able to negotiate peace talks. De Witt was re-elected to the position three times, in 1658, 1663 and 1668. As Chancellor, De Witt made great strides in securing and maintaining peace with other European countries. He also managed to pit the Republic's enemies, England and France, against one another. Through all of this, he still opposed the Orange monarchy and refused to let the Prince of Orange hold a political position. In 1672, things wouldn't work out so well. Political chaos caught up with the Dutch Republic when Louis XIV of France suddenly declared war. The Franco-Dutch War became known as the Dutch Rampiar, meaning the disaster years, as both England and France attacked and were able to effortlessly invade the Dutch Republic. While the Dutch Navy was strong, their army had been largely overlooked. The Dutch people suffered defeat after defeat at the hands of the French, and Johann de Witt's power collapsed. In the aftermath, the Dutch blamed de Witt and his inattention to the Dutch land army. Many thought he failed and wanted a stronger leadership. That's where William III of the House of Orange comes in. The people called for William III to take over while they demonstrated against de Witt. De Witt's brother, Cornelius, was arrested for treason for conspiring against William III. After he was subjected to torture, Cornelius was put in prison. 
having resigned on August the 4th, 1672. Johann de Witt went to visit his brother at Gravengenport Prison at The Hague. What de Witt didn't know was that there was an organised lynch mob, knowing he was visiting his brother, waiting in the wings. With no guards in sight, the crowd burst in and dragged the brothers out. The mob then ripped them to pieces, literally. The mob broke into the prison and accosted the two brothers, dragging them into the street. They hung them by the feet in the city's public gibbet, one of the most humiliating forms of punishment and execution of the 17th century. The mob ripped the flesh from the bodies and began selling and eating the remains. Both of the brothers' livers were taken out and roasted and eaten. Limbs and clothes belonging to the brothers were apparently sold to bystanders in auctions, while pieces of their body were proudly displayed in pubs. Believe it or not, some of Johann and Cornelius's body parts still survive today, and are preserved in the historical museum of The Hague, where the prison gates stand. Unfortunately, these don't get any better, and for our next story we stay in the Netherlands. The Dutch really do have some interesting methods of execution. Balthasar Gerard was a staunch Catholic, born in 1557 in Villa in modern-day France. A lawyer by trade, Gerard was a fervent Catholic and supporter of the Spanish crown which controlled the territories up the coast through the present-day Netherlands, at the peak of its power. On the 15th of March, 1580, Philip of Spain placed a bounty on the head of the Dutch revolt leader, Prince William the Silent. On July 10th, 1584, after a dinner in his home, William went downstairs, where Gerard suddenly stepped out and fired one of two wheel-lock pistols at William's chest. He collapsed and died on the spot, and Gerard fled. But as he made his daring escape, our fleet-footed assassin tripped over some rubbish and was caught. He did not deny his actions, and he was tried and found guilty. The court ordered that Gerard be tortured for three days. On the first day, he was hung with his hands tied behind him on a pole and raised and dropped dislocating his shoulders. Then he was flogged with a bullwhip. The wounds were smeared with honey, and a goat was brought to lick them with its rough tongue. But it would not approach, so his wounds were rubbed with salt. The next day, he was hung on a pole again, and 300 pound weights were tied to each of his big toes for 30 minutes. Shoes made of uncured leather were put on his feet, and he was placed by a fire. The heat of which contracted the shoes crushed the bones in his feet, and the next day they were ripped off, taking the cooked flesh with them. Then, branding irons were pressed into his armpits, his pectoral muscles were cut out, the wounds were rubbed with salt and pins were shoved under all of his fingernails and toenails. Then he was fitted with a shirt soaked in alcohol, 
and burning bacon grease was poured over him. On July the 14th, pincers were used to tear his flesh off. Then his right hand was burnt off with a red hot iron. Then his belly was ripped open and his intestines pulled out. His genitals sliced off and his arms and legs hacked off. His lips were seen trembling until his chest was cut open and his heart was ripped out and flung in his face. Our final story today takes us to Germany and the legend of Peter Nears. His legend may be lesser known than those of Vlad the Impaler or Elizabeth Bathory, but they are no less horrifying. Nears was born into a peasant family in 16th century Germany. During the heyday of serfdom, Nears saw firsthand the struggles of rampant classism. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9pm Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. No doubt the inhumane living conditions and treatment of the peasant class were a catalyst for his later sociopathy. Nears' murder spree took place in the aftermath of the countrywide peasant uprising that began in 1525. Also known as the German Peasant War, this revolt was the largest uprising in Europe until the French Revolution. Peasant armies stormed the castles of wealthy landowners, monasteries and cities. The revolution naturally fostered a hostile environment in which groups of thieving highwaymen roved. Nears formed a gang of his own in Alsace, France, a town situated in the middle of the conflict. It is believed that Nears was inspired by a fellow murderer, Martin Steer a shepherd and a murderer who organised 48 fellow shepherds into a gang of bandits. Steer and his gang claimed to have travelled all the way to the Netherlands. After a 22-year crime spree, Steer was executed in 1572, but not before mentoring Nears. Nears and his rotating group of 24 bandits terrorised the European countryside for years as they stole from and murdered travellers on remote highways. The gang split up to target smaller attacks or banded together to take down larger ones. Eventually, the gang became emboldened enough to march into towns and villages to murder, rape and attack citizens for their goods. Nia's gang travelled hundreds of miles across southern Germany, western France, the Rhineland and Bavaria. The gang's widespread network of crimes extended the story of their misdeeds across Europe and created the lore around Peter Nia and his crimes that persists today. In 1577, Nia and members of his gang were captured 
for the first time after 11 years of crime. One of Nia's accomplices had turned them in and Nia was consequently tortured. He reportedly confessed to 75 murders, some of which explained several accounts of missing local women. Nia's somehow managed to escape his first imprisonment and avoided execution. Soon after, the story of his terrors reached a folklorish level of gore. Pamphlets, books and songs about him were circulating and featured cannibalism, black magic rituals and supernatural abilities. Legend also maintained that cannibalising fetuses could give one the ability to transform himself into a log, stone or animal. As a black magician, it was believed that Nia required an appetite for infanticide. Finally, in 1581, Nia's tenure as a serial killer would come to an appropriately disturbing end. He was finally caught along with seven other thieves and murderers in Newmarket, where he stayed in an inn. During three days of torture, he eventually confessed to 544 murders and cannibalism. On the first day, pincers were used to tear strips of flesh from all over his body, and hot oil was poured into these wounds. On the second day, his feet were smeared in hot oil and held over coals, thus roasting them to the bone. On the third day, he was broken on the wheel. The procedure of breaking on the wheel varied over time and from place to place. In his case, he was tied face up and naked to raise wooden stakes on the ground, which elevated his limbs a few inches. A large, iron-rimmed wagon wheel was then lifted over him and slammed down on his arms and legs a total of 42 times, pulverising the bones from the hand to the shoulder and the feet to the hips. Then, rather than twist his shattered limbs around and through the rim of the spokes of the wheel, they were simply hacked off while he was still alive. Thank you as always for taking the time out of your day to listen to this dark episode. Well that was sickening. It really does amaze me how as humans we can devise some pretty horrible ways to kill our fellow humans. The story of Gorgi Doja is probably the tamest of all of these, believe it or not. But Jesus, that must have been terrible to endure. He's treated like a kind of national hero now with a square, a busy six-lane avenue, and a metro station bearing his name in the capital, and it's one of the most popular street names in Hungarian villages. A number of streets in several cities in Romania are named Gorgi Doja. Also, a number of streets in several cities in Serbia are named after him. Johan de Witt's end. Wow. I mean, the poor guy was down on his luck by the end anyway. He'd lost his job, his brother was in prison, and then when he goes to visit him, you're literally torn limb from limb by a crowd. Have some parts of you eaten and displayed for people to see. That's just brutal. Balthazar Gerard. Shit, you Dutch are inventive. A goat. A fucking 
gold. Whoa. And when that didn't work, they're like, sod it, stick some salt in there, that'll do the trick. I mean, there is no other word to describe it than inventive. They broke his feet with shoes. What the actual? In the case of Peter Nerves, it was said that he was a master black magician who could render himself invisible, transform into a cat, a dog, or a goat. It's said that he garnered these powers through the cannibalization of fetuses and kept the severed hands and feet of infants in a leather pouch at all times. It's no wonder then why the German robber bandit has since been solidly rooted among some of the worst serial killers in history and he, out of all of the people in our stories, deserved everything that happened to him. Before I finish, I must apologise to everyone for my pronunciations. I really do try to get them right, but Hungarian is incredibly hard, and I'd given up by the Dutch ones. Anyway, please drop us a review on the show, it helps the podcast out. If you think friends and family may be interested in the podcast, then share it with them. Links to all socials are below. Don't forget, if you want to support the channel, the link to the show's Patreon is below also. I'm so happy to say we have our first patron, and a massive thank you to Madeline. Also on the Patreon, this is where you can find our This Week in History episodes. As always, if you've been listening for a while, then why not subscribe? Please do it, in that way you never miss an episode. So with all that out of the way, thank you again for listening. Join us next time for our next episode, as we delve into another event and more dark history. <laughs>